Welcome to this podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. It publishes original research and topical reviews on basic and clinical aspects of gastrointestinal sensation and motility, as well as brain-gut interactions. So welcome everyone to this month's podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. My name is Adam Farmer and I'm a gastroenterologist at the Wingate Institute of Neurogastroenterology at Barts and the London School of Medicine in London, UK. This month it's my real pleasure to welcome Dr Peter Liu. Peter is based at the Division of Paediatric Gastroenterology at the Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, USA. So Peter, many thanks for joining us on uh, this month's podcast and, and warm congratulations to both you and your co-authors on a really interesting paper entitled The Rising Cost of Hospital Care for Children with Gastroparesis 2004 to 2013. So if I could start by asking you, how would you define gastroparesis and could you give our listeners a summary of the epidemiology in both adult and pediatric populations? Yeah, so first of all, thank you for having us. Um, so gastroparesis is defined as a, delayed, a delay in uh, gastric emptying in the absence of mechanical obstruction. However, the term should probably be only applied to those who develop upper gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea, vomiting, early satiety. Uh, as a result of their delayed gastric emptying. So um, the prevalence of gastroparesis is still unclear in both adults and children. So I believe there's only been one population-based study on gastroparesis prevalence in adults, and they found that definitive gastroparesis, which they defined as typical symptoms and delayed gastric emptying by gastric scintigraphy, uh, had a prevalence of 24.2 per 100,000 people. And the prevalence did appear to be more uh, to be higher in women than men. So information in children is uh, even more limited. So our understanding of the epidemiology of gastroparesis in children really relies on just a handful of hospital-based uh, retrospective reviews. So we, we really don't have a great idea of what the prevalence might be in the general population. Uh, interestingly, so two of the larger studies found that gastroparesis in children was not more common in females uh, until patients reached adolescence. That's great. So what, what are the causes of gastroparesis in children in comparison to, to adults? So I think the primary difference in the causes of gastroparesis in children when compared to adults is, is uh, that gastroparesis associated with diabetes is much less common in children. So, so we probably see cases of idiopathic or post-infectious gastroparesis uh, most commonly, uh, probably followed by gastroparesis secondary to surgery or certain medications. So there's data out there that suggests that the cost of uh, care of gastroparesis in adults has increased over time. Could you speculate as to how and why that might be the case? Yeah, so that, that's a good point. So I think that we don't have yet a great understanding of the total cost of care for gastroparesis, but it does seem clear that the number of hospitalizations for adults with gastroparesis and the associated cost of these hospitalizations uh, that these have been increasing significantly over time. So there's one study from the United States that showed uh, 18-fold increase in the number of hospitalizations with gastroparesis as the primary diagnosis from 1994 through 2009. And the reasons for this increase, they're not entirely clear, but in the same study, investigators also looked at similar diagnoses and they found a concurrent decrease in hospitalizations, leading them to suggest that perhaps the increase they saw in gastroparesis is partly due to an increase in awareness rather than a real increase in incidence or prevalence. 
However, others have looked at that sharp increase in hospitalizations after 2000 and postulated that perhaps the withdrawal of cisapride from the American market uh, or the increase in hospitalizations for gastric electrical stimulator placement around that time, that maybe those two factors were contributing. So what were the objectives of your study? So we felt that there was a need to better understand whether those trends were being seen in children as well. And uh, our, our objective was therefore to evaluate the cost of hospital care for children with gastroparesis with particular attention to how this cost is changing over time. And what methods did you use to, to address these objectives? So we used uh, a, a database called the Pediatric Health Information System or FIS database. So it's a database that contains administrative data from over 40 children's hospitals in the United States and Canada. So we uh, limited our search to patients up to 21 years of age and the years 2004 through 2013. And then we selected not only inpatient encounters uh, with a diagnosis of gastroparesis, but also encounters with diagnoses of functional dyspepsia and unspecified functional disorder of the stomach. Because we wanted to look at related diagnoses to see if these were trending the same way or in opposite direction, et cetera. So for each encounter, we recorded certain characteristics of the encounter, including dates, patient demographic information, hospital costs, length of stay, the region of the hospital. And then we use this information to try to better understand how the cost of hospital care for children with gastroparesis has been changing over time. So what were your key results to, to emanate from your study? So I think, the, I think our most striking result was that the cost of hospitalization for children with gastroparesis has increased by 5.8 times from 2004 through 2013. And that was primarily driven by an increase in the number of hospitalizations. And that increased by 5.2 times over that time period. The mean cost of each hospitalization did not change significantly. So in contrast to what has been found in adults, the number of hospitalizations for the uh, other two diagnoses, functional dyspepsia and unspecified functional dis disorder of the stomach, those two other diagnoses have also been increasing significantly during this time period in children. So in fact, hospitalizations for functional dyspepsia are increasing at a rate even higher than gastroparesis. And this is against the backdrop of decreasing rates of pediatric hospitalization overall in the United States. So it's also interesting that we did not find a significant female predominance among patients admitted for gastroparesis. And that's consistent with prior studies describing the epidemiology of pediatric gastroparesis. We were also a little bit surprised, I think, that 43.5% of these patients were five years of age or younger, which was more than all the other age groups we looked at. But actually, this is also consistent with what other, uh, what the prior studies had demonstrated as well. I think I think that's very interesting indeed, because I, my understanding is certainly in in the adult uh, population is that uh, whilst the rates of gastroparesis diagnosis have been going up, that's been mirrored by a, a, some reduction in in functional dyspepsia. So your results, I think. Uh, are very enlightening in that respect. What do you think are the key limitations of your of your study? Yeah, so unfortunately, any study using a large administrative database is going to have some inherent limitations. So in my opinion, our biggest limitation is that we don't know how each diagnosis of gastroparesis was made. So was this made based on a combination of symptoms and documented delayed gastric emptying? Or is this based on presentation and maybe response to a prokinetic medication? or is this based just on clinical presentation alone? So I think this is particularly relevant to the group of children under five, which is our largest group. So we already know, um, based on some earlier research, that gastric emptying testing varies a lot between children's hospitals. 
And the variability is probably the greatest in the very young. Um, so another limitation I think is important to recognize is that the database we used consists of information from a select group of children's hospitals. So this is not necessarily representative of national or certainly you know, international hospitalization trends. That's very, very interesting. And, and just, just for my own education, does the protocol in which you uh, perform gastric emptying in, in children vary from, from that of adults? So, you know, I think that it's, there's been some attempts to standardize it in a similar way to adults. But I think the biggest uh, thing that we have to remember is in children who are younger than five, a lot of them can't, so certainly they can't tolerate kind of the standard meal that we use. And so, and then depending on kind of their developmental age, some of them may not be, be able to tolerate solid foods at all. And uh, there certainly have not been norms that have been created for each of those kind of developmental stages. So I think that there's a, and I think there's still a lot of work to be done to really identify a standard way kind of for each child as they get older, uh, a standard way of, uh, you know, defining what's normal and what's not. Making making the diagnosis, absolutely. So thinking about the, the field uh, at large, where do you think the knowledge gaps uh, currently lie and how, how do we go about to resolving these? Yeah, so I think that, so I think in the big picture, kind of the take home point of the study is that pediatric motility and functional GI disorders are associated with a significant and growing cost. So we need to find more cost-effective ways to diagnose and treat gastroparesis in children. And, you know, so like I was saying before, I think one of the big issues is trying to, trying to figure out, first of all, how to accurately diagnose gastroparesis in children of all age groups. And, and then I think in a way to improve upon that, so in addition to being standardized, I think we should also think about ways to make it safe and inexpensive. So perhaps no ex radiation exposure and in a way that could be performed uh, more easily, not just in specialized uh, children's hospitals. So um, that could involve, you know, establishing, you know, age-specific test protocols, but also potentially evaluating other modalities, such as like using a wireless motility capsule or breath testing. And then after that, I think the second key issue would be how to treat gastroparesis in children in a cost-effective manner, especially if symptoms persist despite starting a prokinetic medication or dietary modifications alone. And um, our, our experience with the use of gastric electrical stimulation in children is, is growing and it's promising, but certainly remains fairly limited. So I think those are two kind of the, the big questions that we still need, to, still need to answer. So Peter, with that, I'd like to thank you and your co-authors for, for a really excellent uh, paper and for assisting in this month's uh, podcast. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. and I look forward to welcoming you again on another installment of the podcast next month. Further information about this paper can be found on the journal website. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to welcoming you to next month's edition.